have your Bibles tonight and um, trusting that you brought them with you, whether they be in print or uh, on your phone or iPad or whatever device that you may have, uh, invite you to go to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, the verses 3 through 8 tonight in our steady series, thinking about, okay, if we're going to be steady in our walk with Christ, if we're going to live steadily or be firmly fixed for Christ, it's going to require some types of living. And so tonight we're going to think about the idea of living thankfully. Living thankfully, Colossians chapter 1. If you would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. This idea is fitting, right, coming right before Thanksgiving, but what does it mean to live a life of thankfulness that is directed more at God than ourselves? Verse number three, this is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus And of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you have learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. This has been the reading of the Word. I praise God that he has entrusted it and preserved it for us. Uh, Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come to you tonight, uh, our minds and hearts primed by the singing of, of songs to you. And now as we turn our attention to your Word, we humbly ask that you move and work in and through it to transform us, to make us more like you. Uh, We think even tonight of just different ministries and uh, groups of people here in the city and around the world. We think of uh, Zach Thiel and and the College Ministry at Graceway and be with them tonight as they gather together. We think of even our missionaries abroad, uh, Aaron and Kristen Scanlon, who are serving you in Spain. And we just ask that you would watch over those ministries and you would work through them, that they would see many people come to know you and be discipled for you as a result of their faithfulness to proclaim the word to those around them. And Father, we again ask tonight that you would just move in a mighty way through your word. I ask that you would help me to preach clearly, that my thoughts would be clear and my words would be easy to understand because they are your words and they alone have the power to change us. So thank you for allowing us to gather tonight. It's in your son's name we ask all these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. You know, thankfulness, it's one of the first things that most parents will teach their children. You know, they will teach uh, small children to say please and thank you. You know, those are the magic words, uh, please and thank you. Um, and, and later as you go through life, you're goaded along in your thankfulness. So you, you need to be thankful, even if that means that you have to tell your grandma or your grandpa, thank you for the pack of socks that they get you at Christmas time that haven't been in style since they were a kid. And arguably it wasn't really in style when they were a kid. And so you begrudgingly say thank you for that. Um, I grew up in a house where birthdays, 
uh, Christmas. Uh, If we got a present on the 4th of July, uh, my mom had an expectation that we were going to write everyone a thank you note. So I learned early in life. Um, I was also part of a Christian school that thought for whatever reason I needed to write in cursive. So I would write these thank you notes in cursive handwriting and then mail them off and never know if anyone was actually genuinely pleased to receive a thank you note. Um, They went in the mail, and I'm sure that whoever had given me that particular gift on that particular occasion probably doesn't have those thank you notes anymore. In fact, I think I'm going to ask my aunt and uncle over this particular Christmas if they have any of those thank you notes, because I don't know why I would want to do that. It would probably be embarrassing. But maybe it would be good to know if they were thankful for my thankfulness. Isn't that ironic? Nobody ever sends a thank you note for the thank you note. Think of how endless that could be. Thank you for the thank you note. Well, thank you for the thank you note for the thank you note. And before you know it, you've exchanged eight letters, all of which just saying thank you. But it's interesting. You know, as a kid and and as you grow up, you're supposed to be thankful. You know, there's a lot of people who are like the Grinch around Thanksgiving time because um, we're going to plow right through Thanksgiving and go to Black Friday and on to Christmas. One thing is actually fitting uh, in our society that we do this, because to be honest with you, why should Americans really pause on this a week from tomorrow and pretend that they're thankful when it's evident 364 other days out of the year that they aren't? So, I mean, we're never satisfied. We're never thankful for what we do have. That's why we're going to eventually have the iPhone 24 XLR ST7, And that will be the phone that we own in the next eight months because we're never satisfied and we're never thankful for what we currently have. You know, it's never so sad as to watch uh, children in third world countries read tweets about not having up to date technology. I mean, those are the kind of things that we see and even kind of parody in our culture. But I think it's it's so much more than just this kind of generic thankfulness that Christians need to get past. This idea of just being generically thankful. There's something to being God-centered in our thankfulness or having a thankfulness about the people around us that is distinct from just being thankful that, uh, I don't know, whatever you're thankful for right now that seems trivial. Um, That Some of you are getting ready to go on Thanksgiving break. Um, one day you'll be an adult and not have that luxury of, I think BBC students now have nine days to Thanksgiving break. I, it's just ridiculous. Like, before you know it, they're going to be taking off October 1st because, you know, Thanksgiving break's right around the corner. So just whatever it is that you find maybe might not be something that's incredibly, that we would be overwhelmed by with thankfulness, I want to encourage us tonight maybe to stop thinking in terms of just generically being thankful, but actually being thankful in a biblical sense. And the Apostle Paul continually is that type of person. He's a Christian who is biblically thankful. And he every time he addresses a different particular congregation, he thanks God for them. And so what I want to do tonight in our time together is challenge us to be people who are thankful and that live thankfully, but that do it in a way that is distinctly Christian. So how are we going to do that? The Apostle Paul, I think, cues us into three parts of what it looks like to 
be a person who is distinctly thankful as a Christ follower? Number one, a Christian who is thankful distinctively from the world of just this type of generic, pedantic, thank you for opening the door, but not really genuinely thankful, is that the Christian's thankfulness is directed towards God. Look at verse 3, if you will. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And it's crazy. We give thanks to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. It's remarkable that the Apostle Paul starts off by saying that that he and, and we, specifically he and Timothy, give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the Colossians. You say, why is that remarkable? Paul does that everywhere. Well, if you remember last time we gathered and talked about the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never met with these believers. He had never uh, been around them. He hadn't started the church. Epaphras started the church in Colossae. He's merely writing to address some of the problems that exist there and to encourage these particular believers. And yet he tells them in this first part of the letter that he prays for them and he thanks God regularly for them. You, You say, why is that so amazing? Well, I think it's amazing because... You know, you and I might struggle, and maybe I should just say I struggle. Maybe you're Johnny Super Christian, you don't struggle. I struggle at times to regularly pray for my small group or everyone in the college ministry or even everyone in our church, let alone a church halfway across town, 25 miles away from me, or even further. And yet the Apostle Paul says, I've never met you. I don't know you. And yet, I'm praying for you regularly. And when I pray for you, I'm thanking God for you. The Apostle Paul, though, recognizes that nothing in the life of the Colossian believers could be accomplished if it wasn't for the working of God. That's why he says we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. It's it's in this type of prayer, it's directed at God because he alone is worthy of the praise because he's going to talk in a minute about the way that they're growing. But he knows that their growth is not in and of themselves. He knows that their growth isn't something that they've manufactured, but that God is doing in them. We we are tempted to think that we grow ourselves, but God is the one who is growing us and shaping us and molding us and making us into his image after we come to know Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul is thankful. His thanks being directed at God is because he knows he hasn't changed anyone at the Colossians. He hasn't changed one person there, but God has. And because of that, he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of honor, he's worthy of thanksgiving. You know, Mark Johnson is helpful on this particular point. He says, too often we look to our leaders, our members, our resources, and our plans and think that they are the key to church life. But that's not the case. It's only as we truly appreciate that were it not for God and what he has planned and what he has purposed, in eternity, and then fulfilled through the coming of his son in history, there would be no church and we would have no future. 
our thanks are due to God alone. If we're not careful, we see our college ministry grow, we see our church grow, and we begin to think that somehow, some way, we are doing it. Start another small group, have to bring in more chairs. And it's real easy to walk around as if somehow, some way, we're the ones who are growing this place. And man, isn't God lucky that he has us on his team? Because how would he be able to pull this off if it weren't for us? It's in those moments that you need a swift kick to the head. Because you've forgotten. You know, there's a reason why I love being from Iowa. It's because it's humbling. Nobody gives a rip about anybody who's come out of Iowa. It's almost the biblical equivalent to can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it doesn't take long for me to remind myself that I was 14 years old in a small, independent, fundamental, heavy on the mental and light on the fun church. And that for some reason, in God's plan, he called me to ministry. And for some reason, he seemed fit to open the doors to teach at a Bible college and for some reason, he saw fit to allow me to, to work on staff here. And for some reason, he's seen fit to move and, and shape my life as he has. But it's not because of me. And I want to ask you tonight, is your thankfulness towards what you've accomplished in life towards God or towards yourself? Some of you are like, well, David, you haven't seen my ACT scores. Well, first of all, nobody gives a rip about ACT scores. The only people who give a rip about ACT scores are people who get beat up because they give a rip about their ACT scores. And notice that once you're in college, nobody cares anymore. You're in your third year of college, slugging away barely above water. No junior walks into the Placer Student Union going, I got a 32 on my ACT. Shut up. We're trying to survive. No one cares. We are tempted to believe that the things that come into our lives are somehow our manufacturer. We gave ourselves the mental acumen to be able to be smart, or we gave ourselves the physical prowess to be a gifted athlete. We did not do anything. God has given all of it to us. I'm pretty good at one thing, talking about the Bible. And even that isn't something that I have done on my own. It's all of God's. And where it's bad, that's me. Where it's good, it's God. Because it's not hard to differentiate between the good and the bad coming from the one above. And that's what I want to ask you tonight. Is your th- the things that you're thankful about, are they directed at the right people? It would be incredibly arrogant to pray, God, thank you that I am so awesome. And that I have made myself to be the person I am. Yet more often than not, the way that we walk and the way that we talk indicates a direct lack of thankfulness to the one who's given us every gift, be it spiritual or common grace gift. So is your thankfulness really directed toward God, or is it just a fake type of thankfulness? And do you really, honestly, do you really regularly in your prayer time thank God for 
how he has given you different gifts and abilities and talents and how he is growing you and how he is shaping you and molding you, how much of your prayer life is spent thanking God? If, it, if it's small, it needs to change. There's one area where God has really convicted me about the lack of time that I spend praying and thanking him for what he's doing. And so if we're going to be people who are Christians who are distinctly thankful, it starts by being directed at God when we pray or when we're talking to him or just in our day-to-day lives, just an attitude of gratitude. But it's focused at God, toward him. But also, number two, it's focused on Christ's likeness. So it's directed toward God, but it's also focused on Christ's likeness. Look at verse number four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The Apostle Paul uses a triad or a group of three attributes to focus in on the Colossians' growth in Christ's likeness. He begins by speaking of their faith in Christ Jesus and praising them in the sense of praising them as he thanks God for their faith. When was the last time you were really genuinely excited and thanking God that he saved the people around you? We're not prone to thank God often for the people around us that he has saved. We, we, we spend a lot of time maybe praying for people who don't know Christ, but we don't spend nearly any time thanking God for the people that he has saved and put in our lives. He's placed them and orchestrated them and put them around us to encourage us. And so the Apostle Paul, because he's heard this report about the Colossians and he knows about their work through Epaphras, thanks God regularly for their faith. When was the last time you spent any time thanking God for the people around you or that you know that are your friends that have come to saving faith? Then he moves on and he speaks of their love. This is the second of the three things that Paul will speak to. And, and, and one of the things that happens when someone is genuinely converted is the way that they interact and tr- treat other people changes. It changes from being someone who's mainly focused on self to mainly focused on others and has a genuine love for their well-being. It, it, uh, maybe a helpful illustration, it might not be a good one, but it might be a helpful one, would be the transition that takes place sometime in the awkward years of middle school. When a young boy goes from throwing rocks at girls to genuinely trying, albeit poorly, to get a date with one of them. This kind of shift that we see take place, and it's noticeable, it's, sometimes it's not noticeable because they don't stop. Some of you are still wondering, you know, I'm at college, I throw rocks at people and they get upset and call the cops, just trying to show my affection. Why am I so misunderstood? Uh, we don't have time for that. But you see this shift that takes place in the way that someone treats 
another person. Probably a better illustration and even more helpful illustration would be the shift that takes place between pre-lottery winner and post-lottery winner. Pre-lottery winner has about three friends. Post-lottery winner has about 3,000, even if they only won $10. Everybody wants a tie, especially when the prize is astronomical. It's amazing the type of shift that takes place in people. We, we call that fake or uh, someone who's a user. Here, what the Apostle Paul is saying is there should be some shift that has taken place in a life of a believer that they genuinely move from love of self to love of others, to care for them, to desire their well-being, to desire what's best. And it's all motivated, and this is the third part of the triad here in verse number five, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The faith motivates the love, but it's all stimulated by the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. The motivation to continue down this path of loving people even when they're hard to love, caring for people, encouraging them, thanking God on their behalf, is the hope that one day they will be with you in heaven and they won't be who they are right now. That is like the mantra of a pastor. I have to be looking at heaven. Because sometimes the people that I pastor, that would be you, are difficult to love. But love that is motivated by faith in Christ and focused on eternity helps me and should help you when you deal with a friend or a pastor or somebody around you that you're trying to help get to maturity in Christ. It's that motivation. And let me share this with you. Dick Lucas wrote this. We are not to think of ourselves as largely enjoying the fruit of Christ's victory now with heaven as some glorious consummation, a kind of finishing touch as if heaven is some sort of cherry on top of an ice cream sundae of coming to know Christ. Rather, we are to recognize that heaven holds most of the great things won for us by Christ and that our present experience is no more than a precious foretaste of what is to come. In other words, getting saved, coming to know Christ, is not ultimately consummated in what you experience here on earth now, but it is the hope of eternity to come. That is what we long for and look to. But far too often, and quite regularly, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are like a child who lives in the slum making mud pies, never knowing of the holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our hope is rooted not in the glory of heaven to come, but is rooted in and with and by whatever makes us happy in the moment the current Netflix special, the date on Thursday night. The 
getaway trip. All of those things satisfy us more than the hope of eternity. And we've got to get our eyes off of this earth and up on heaven. Because it's only when we're focused rightly on heaven that we live for Christ boldly here on earth. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg talking about John Knox, who apparently in Scotland, while he was preaching, had stools thrown at him. It was just kind of intimidating to think about having a stool thrown at you during the middle of a sermon. I'm not suggesting we try that here. Although I think it would be funny to see you throw maybe those stools out there from a distance. They said about Knox... This great Scottish reformer pastor that he so feared the face of God that he feared no man. What would it be like if a generation of college students didn't give a rip about what anybody on their campus thought about them? Because the only thing they were consumed by is what God thought about them. Whether they weren't focused on getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but focused on glorifying God. Not of moving to the next stage in their career, but of ultimately making much of Christ. The only way that you're able to do that is by having your eyes firmly fixed on heaven and not on this earth. And we have to be reminded of this. We have to be. And sometimes it takes tragedy to, to move our eyes from this world to heaven. And sometimes it takes pain and it takes suffering to move our eyes and fix them back on to heaven. And it's uncomfortable and it's painful, but God knows in the end he is doing it for our good and for his glory. Which is crazy to think about. You wonder how many opportunities I've missed in the midst of suffering because I said, woe is me, instead of how great our God. You say, David, that's going to be really easy to do. It's incredibly difficult to do. It's not easy. But it's focusing our eyes and recognizing. That's why I love the line. That our present experience on earth is no more than a precious foretaste of what is to come. That means the experience we have now with Christ is but a taste of what is to come. I love ice cream. It's not a surprise to anyone here. You go to an ice cream shop that you've never been to before, and you get these little things full of little spoons. I'm here to get excited. I don't know what's here. I don't know if their vanilla tastes different than our vanilla. You're like, it's a vanilla. It's not vanilla. It tastes different from place to place. So they take these little sample spoons, and they give you little tastes of all the different ice creams. And the best part is the, the bigger ice cream is still coming. That's the best part. I've tasted 38 different flavors of ice cream. I've basically had an ice cream cone. They're like, what would you like now? I'm like, hmm, options. The present reality of living with the spirit and fighting the flesh here on this particular earth, here on earth, 
is like that little sample of ice cream. It's too often we're like, oh, I'll have a sample, and then we walk out the door. Not focused on what the bigger and better is that we're going to experience one day together for all of eternity. But Paul is not talking about his own life here. He's talking about the lives of other people around him. So this is where it really pivots to say, this is Paul's attitude toward other people. We listen to sermons and we're like, well, if it doesn't speak to me, then I'm going to, I'm going to look for another place to worship because I'm not being fed. Which probably is the laziest line in all of Christendom for, I don't know how to listen to a sermon and grow as a result of it. I'm really tired of you plopping down a text of scripture in front of me and telling me all about it and telling me how great it is. I want you to cut it up and feed it to me as well. Here in these particular verses, Paul is not talking about himself. He's talking about the Colossians, which begs the question, when was the last time you thought about this idea of faith, love, and hope towards someone else? The people around you, the people in your small group. When was the last time you got excited that somebody was growing? You know, sometimes a student will say to me, I'm reading this particular book that I haven't recommended and they didn't ask me about and is quality stuff. And part of me wants to fall to the floor because I'm so excited. I can't believe that they are. I get excited when people grow. Are you excited about people growing in your small group or in your college ministry? Or are you just so self-centered you can't even see it? The church somehow has become all about me and all about who I am and all about my wants and my needs. And so if the music isn't, we don't sing more Bethel stuff. And if there isn't gold pixie dust coming out of the ceiling, and if it doesn't, the whole band is not jumping and the place is dark as can be, and we're just experiencing some sort of rock concert feel, then I'm going to go somewhere else. Or he preaches too long and he talks too much about the Bible. Well, if that's your problem, I'm going to tell you it's not going to change around here. Somehow worship and coming to church has become this buffet style where I'm like, oh, a little bit more feel good and a little bit more music, like about 80 minutes of music and about 10 minutes of preaching. Just a reminder, worship is the whole thing. The songs set up the preaching and the preaching of the word is what should stir you to respond and not the way that the pastor does it, but the content of the text should stir you towards Christ's likeness, which can't be all about me. So we've got to get our eyes up on heaven and off of ourselves and onto those around us and encourage them. When was the last time you told someone, I've noticed how much you've grown in the last year, and I just want to tell you, man, it's been super encouraging. I just love you to death and um, just thankful that we get to be in the same small group together and um, just excited to see what God's going to do in your life. Well, after you pick that person up off the floor, I'd be interested to know what they think, because more often than not, we're consumed with our own lusts and our own desires and our own trivialities. What 
was the last time you talked to me? Yeah, I just really noticed that you've been growing. And, I, you're, you know, in the last six months, your answers to the questions, they've gotten so much better. And if the person is offended by that, it might be a good thing to say, well, the main reason why they've gotten so much better is because six months ago you weren't saying anything. So it wasn't hard. Some of you, that's like the, the easiest win in your spiritual life. You just to start talking about the way that God is moving through your week. And people will be like, man, you've just been blown away. Because you didn't even know your lips worked in small groups. They work out. But when we walk in this room, it's like, meh. They put up that little divider over there, man, and it's like, your lips are shut. The divider goes up, and they're back, they work again. Amazing. Miracles. When was the last time you encouraged someone and told them, I'm thankful for how you're growing to be more like Christ. And I like being around you because when I'm around you, I feel like I'm growing more just from being around you. Because you are, you ever been around these people? I'm not trying to digress here, but have you ever been around these, these, these people before? They're like, you can't help but be around them. And it's not them. Because you knew them before they came to know Christ. And then you knew them after they came to know Christ. And it's like so different. You're like, I'm not really sure if that guy got saved or is part of a cult. But everywhere you walk with them, you, this, this guy oozes Bible. I tell you all the time because John Bunyan is like one of my all-time heroes of the faith, uh, 16th century creation. His friend said, we, we love being around Bunyan because he bleeds Bibline. He, he bleeds the Bible like we can't talk about a jolly thing without the Bible coming out. We, like, don't want those people around us. We're like, what is wrong with you? I want those people around me. I need those people around me. Because my sarcasm and my wit and my sense of humor hasn't been fully sanctified yet. And being around those type of people helps for those things to be shaped and molded and made in the image of Christ. Who are the people that you want around you that you would be thankful to be around? Because they're just helping you grow so much. And then finally tonight, ultimately, living distinctively thankful lives means first being directing our thankfulness towards God, letting our thankfulness be focused on Christ's likeness, and then finally having our thankfulness motivated by the gospel look at the verse the back half of verse five of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of god in truth as you also learned from epaphras our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of christ on your behalf who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Paul makes it clear that it is the power of the gospel that has motivated all of this. The thankfulness directed toward God, the thankfulness for, toward Christ's likeness, is all part and parcel thanks to the power of the gospel. It's not Paul, it's not Epaphras who has the power to change the Colossians, but it's the power of the unchanging message of the gospel that is conforming them and transforming them into the image of Christ. And Paul emphasizes here in verse number five, he says, 
before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. Paul is emphasizing the fact that the gospel message has spread all over the world and it's changing people's lives there as well as in Colossae. It's a worldwide impact. It's a worldwide gospel. It's not limited to a certain particular people group, but it goes global. We get weirded out by going global. One commentator notes that the individual churches are actually speaking of like Colossians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, that these individual churches are representative of the Gentile world as a whole. They were for Paul a sign and a promise of the universal scope of God's saving purposes in the world. We need to be reminded of this because we're tempted in the Fox News CNN world that we live in to prioritize America over every other nation. And as Christians, while we are thankful that God has blessed us and God has given us the right and the ability to live in this world or in this particular country, that does not trump our ultimate citizenship in Christ. It's often uncomfortable to say, but we are for the global good of the world over our own self-preservation as Christians. Our desire is that the world would come to know Christ. Well, I love Kabidi's Anwabile statement. We take the gospel from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Some of you are resisting God's call on your life to go to the nations because living in America is comfortable. Living here is easy. It's nice. I don't have to worry about a lot of things. Meanwhile, people who have never heard the name of Christ die. And Paul is reminding the Colossians that this gospel message is not unique to them. It's not unique to their culture. It's not a Colossian gospel, but a global gospel. And then finally in these verses, he notes that had it not been for Epaphras, the Colossians would have never heard the gospel. He says, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. You know, commentators believe that Epaphras lived in uh, Ephesus and that he struck out on mission to share the gospel in Colossae, but also didn't stop in Colossae. He moved to Laodicea and then to Heropolis and planted three churches. And Paul highlights this. He's our fellow, beloved, dear servant. That, that's who we're talking about, Epaphras, because Epaphras understood this. Long before Robbie Gallaty ever said it, the gospel came to Epaphras on its way to someone else. And Epaphras understood that. The question tonight is, who is God? Who has God placed around you and entrusted you with reaching them with the gospel message? 
Not that you have the power to convert them, not that you have the power to save anyone, but he has entrusted you with a great and grand commission to reach people of all tongues, tribes, and nations. Yes, all of them, even the ones you don't like or uncomfortable thinking about. Yes, all of those nations, he has commissioned his church as his vehicle for changing the world. Not the parachurch, not a group of nice humanitarians, but the church of Jesus Christ, rooted, founded on the gospel, is the vehicle and the commissioned agent for change in the world. Let's close by looking at this. Who has also declared to us your love in the Spirit? One of the things that's unique is Paul tells the Colossians, Epaphras has been talking about you. He has been sharing with us about you. But he's been doing it through the love, declared to us your love in the spirit. His genuine care for each other. Epaphras has a deep love for these believers. And the Apostle Paul takes note of that. But he also takes note of the the fact that the Colossians have a deep love for Epaphras. It's only when congregations and pastors love each other deeply that they're able to ask and challenge each other on the hard stuff. It's only when you get to a deep type of love that you can say things that will really challenge you and vice versa. Which begs the question of how central is the gospel in your everyday life to the point that you would love each other and me and your leaders around you to be able to have some of those difficult conversations. Well, I was reflecting with a former student earlier this week about another former student that he happened to be married to that in one particular occasion basically told me in no uncertain terms I was sucking as a pastor. To which she was right. It was one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had because I wanted to lash out and remind her that I could easily take her. I had to beat you up. That's all I could think of in that moment, reflecting on it the other night. Why? Why couldn't I be more spiritual? Like, I could beat you in a Bible verse challenge. I could write better papers on theological topics than you. But that moment, all I could think is, I can take you. Then the spirit began to work. And she was right. She had shared with me uh, a, a prayer request and a desire for me to reach out to another student. And I had not done it. And it wasn't like two days ago. It was like three months ago. And none of my excuses in that matter in that moment mattered because she was right. It's only when we have a deep affection for each other and care more about the gospel and its proclamation and its truth and its growing up that we can have some of the frank conversations that we have. Because sometimes when you feel like this particular adult leader or that pastor is momming or dadding me, maybe you need to think in terms of they love me enough that they're going to use harsh language in a sense of stern or gospel-centered focused language to spur me to love God more. And maybe, like me, it's better to not say in that moment, I can take you. But listening to the way that the Spirit is 
using that particular Christian for stirring up those lusts in them and then thanking God for them. That they would care enough to stir and question and push towards godliness. It's not enough for us to be merely thankful. We need to be thankful in a way that pleases and honors and brings glory to God for he alone is worthy of our praise and our thankfulness. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening and we hope you have a great day.